Well, I played uh, a lot of sports growing up, and so most of my friends were on sports teams with me. Uh, One friend in particular, his name was Paul, is also a pastor now, and uh, he was a few years older than me, but we went to church together, we did Bible studies together, uh, and for a year we wrestled together. Uh, Paul had a goal to make it to state his senior year, and so leading up to the season, he ran long distances, he sprinted, he lifted weights, he ate right. Uh, He worked really hard to come into the season in better shape than anyone on the team. During practices, he didn't just show up, but he put in hard work day in and day out, and slowly but surely, that hard work paid off. As the season went on, Paul won various tournaments, was a conference champion, and ultimately qualified for state. Paul's senior year, he let what was coming, uh, a chance at the state tournament, just drive decisions that he made for months leading up to the wrestling season. As we wrap up our series in Philippians this morning, we find ourselves in a similar situation. No, we're not looking for our shot at the state tournament, right? But as we saw last week, we are eagerly awaiting the arrival of something much, much bigger, our Savior. And so uh, this morning we'll be looking at uh, joy in the glory of God in Philippians chapter 4. So if you would open there in the Worship Center Bible, that's on page 1042. Uh, Otherwise, if you're using a digital version, you can use whatever translation you want, but I'll be preaching from uh, the Christian Standard Bible. Our question this morning is not how do I live in light of the coming state tournament, but how do I live in light of the coming Savior? Throughout the book of Philippians, we've learned a lot, right? We've talked about prayer, we've talked about circumstances, about obedience and worship and keeping the gospel pure and our inability to earn favor with God or earn our salvation and about living lives worthy of the gospel and about living lives that are worthy of being imitated as we seek to imitate Jesus. Hopefully, uh, as we've walked through the book of Philippians, you've been challenged both in your theology, the way you think about God, and your practice, the way that you live out your life. The concluding chapter of this great book deals again both with our practice and our theology, and we're going to see that Paul encourages us in three areas while we eagerly await our Savior. First, Paul encourages our practices. Let's look back at verses 1 through 9. It says this, So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I, yes I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul opens this chapter and says, so then, so then in light of what we just talked about, in light of 
pursuing together the goal of Christ, stand firm in the Lord in the following ways. First, he says, agree in the Lord. Euodia and Syntyche, besides having names that are extremely difficult to figure out how to pronounce, uh, are in scripture for all of eternity for something that they probably don't want to be. Right? They just couldn't get along. They won't stop fighting. And we don't know specifically what their disagreement was, but we do know that they couldn't get along. And so, in the book where we read about God's plan uh, for redemption from eternity past and to eternity future, their names are recorded as the two women who just couldn't get along. Not something you probably want to be recorded for. Paul says, practice number one, agree in the Lord. These two women, he says, have contended for the gospel at his side, and so uh, whatever they're disagreeing about is likely secondary in nature. Paul has already called out the Judaizers. He's called them dogs, right? These people who perverted the gospel, Uh, And that doesn't seem to be the case with these two. It says that their names are in the book of life. And so uh, whatever they're arguing about seems to be secondary in nature. Whatever it was, though, they were disagreeing strongly enough and publicly enough that it may have begun to cause division in the church. Certainly there are issues that are worth disagreeing over, right? Certainly there are issues that are worth disagreeing over publicly, There are issues in the church that can have strong and deep convictions and feelings and can be very personal. Things like preference in worship style. Things like the role of women in ministry. Things like the method and mode of baptism. Things like the meaning and symbolism in taking the Lord's Supper together. Those are important issues, right? Issues that could legitimately cause someone to feel like they needed to worship somewhere else. None of them are worth causing division in the body of Christ over. As the body, we must agree in the Lord. It's okay to disagree over non-gospel issues. I love that about the denomination we're part of, the Evangelical Free Church of America. We major on the majors and we minor on the minors. But when we major on the minors and we do it publicly and in a divisive way, we hurt the body of Christ and we hinder permission. So disagree, debate, discuss, change the way you think and change the minds of your friends as you dig into the word and wrestle hard with what God has to say about topics that aren't always as crystal clear as we'd like. But do it in a way that doesn't cause damage to the message of the gospel. One of the worst things we do as Christians is crucify each other over legitimate disagreements on non-gospel issues while the world watches. Second, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Many commentators argue that the book of Philippians finds its peak here in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. If you don't take anything else away from this message or from the whole book of Philippians, uh, take this verse, hear this, in whatever is going on in your life, rejoice. Good? Rejoice. Bad? Rejoice. It's an odd time for Paul, seemingly right, to include this command. You two ladies, stop arguing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Well, I don't think it's actually really that odd because once we begin to agree in the Lord, our natural response is to rejoice. And actually, if we flip that order, it's even better. Rejoice in the Lord 
always. See, when we rejoice in the Lord always, our hearts and our minds and our attitudes are transformed and being agreeable becomes easier. Praying becomes easier. Dwelling on things that are good becomes easier. Choosing to rejoice in Jesus minute by minute will transform your life. Paul knew that all the way back in the 50s and in the, 20, in the 2000 teens, it's still true, right? Paul was able to deal with his unjust jailing and his difficult circumstances because he had chosen to rejoice in Jesus minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, and year by year. The hashtag choose joy had over 1.2 million hits on Instagram when I last checked. People want to experience joy, don't they? As believers in Christ, we know the secret to true joy, and it's only found in Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Third, Paul says, be gracious. Uh, the last two weeks, both Ryan and Kale spoke of this idea that Paul talks about in chapter 3 of grieving over the Judaizers, right? These brothers and sisters in Christ who have replaced the truth uh, with a second-rate gospel, a, a do-something type gospel, right? They talked about uh, envisioning Paul writing his letter and seeing the wet spots on the paper as he wept for his brothers and sisters who had been deceived. Last week, Kale challenged us to think about uh, when we look at social media and we see people posting their perfect lives in pictures and memes. And as he shared this challenge, he asked the question, are we weeping for these people or are we jealous? The question hit me really hard, actually, but not with the word that Kale used. I heard this challenge instead as this. When, when we see people around us on social media or otherwise with their perfect fake lives, are we weeping for them or are we judgmental? As we look into people in process, people who are working on themselves and working out their salvation with fear and trembling, people who are letting the Spirit sanctify them slowly but surely, are we gracious or do we hope they fail because we know who they really are? Do we show grace to people inside the church who mess up? There's a Christian comedian that my wife loves. Uh, his name is John Christ. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, he roasts the church with regularity, and usually it's actually pretty hilarious. Uh, but sometimes the things that he says are really convicting. And so speaking of this whole idea, Christ throws out the thought of what we do as Christians to our brothers and sisters when they mess up. So-and-so gets hammered one Friday night. They make a fool of themselves. They make bad decisions. What's our tendency as believers? Oh, I knew it. I knew it. I knew that was the real them. They were faking the whole time. Well, what if we flipped the narrative as a church family? What if instead of seeing the worst in each other all the time, we were gracious? What if we were so good to each other that as Paul challenges, our graciousness would be known to everyone? Instead of someone messing up and us jumping all over them, maybe we jump to a different conclusion. The conclusion that they're a brother or sister in Christ who needs the body to surround them and encourage them towards Jesus, not kick them while they're down. Imagine being part of a community like that. Imagine being in a place where we're all pulling for each other along the way. Yeah, so-and-so messed up and she dropped an F-bomb and yeah, so-and-so messed up when, and was a total jerk to his wife or to the waiter during that double date that you went on. Well, people mess up. People make 
mistakes, but those mistakes don't have to be a death sentence in a friendship, in the church body, in a marriage, in a job. Let's rally around each other in those moments and speak hope, not condemnation, into those situations. We're all people in process, right? It's called sanctification, and we all desperately need each other along the way. Be gracious, so gracious that those outside the church would want to be part of a community like this and would want to encounter Jesus. Fourth, Paul says, don't worry, pray. The Lord is near, he writes, so go to him and present your requests. In many other belief systems, uh, God is not a God who's near, but he's a God who's far off. Watching from a distance this cosmic being who may or may not be interested in what's happening in our lives. Not so with our God. Paul says the Lord is near, and since he is near, he hears us. So don't worry about anything. How can we achieve this practice of not worrying? Well, Paul says by looking to the Lord in prayer. A story is told of a pastor from the 1700s, John Wesley, who was out walking one day with a troubled man who was expressing doubt in the goodness of God. He turned to Wesley and said, I don't know what I shall do with all this worry and trouble. At the same moment, Wesley saw a cow looking over a stone wall. Do you know why that cow is looking over the wall? No, the man replied. Wesley said the cow is looking over the wall because she cannot see through it. That is what you must do with your wall of trouble. Look over it and avoid it. Our faith in Christ gives us the means to look over our wall of worry and see Jesus. And Paul says to experience peace which surpasses all understanding. We can work really hard and we can try harder and we can make decisions that we think, in theory, should lead us to a nice, comfortable life, right? But unexpected things happen. Jobs are lost. Pregnancies occur, or they don't. Tires blow. Unexpected financial burdens are placed on us. Sickness hits. Kids make choices that we either like or we don't like. Living in a world tainted by sin is unpredictable at best and downright chaotic at worst. The only way we'll ever experience peace in the midst of chaos is when we draw near to the Lord who's already drawn near to us. We can't plan enough or work enough or coordinate enough to avoid the chaos and unpredictability. For those of you who are control freaks like me, this is especially tough, isn't it? I love the planning and the working out of logistics and all those sorts of things that my job allows me to do, but I hate what that part of my personality does to my stress levels. The only place we can deal with the unpredictable things in life is before the throne of God in prayer with thanksgiving. The good news is your prayers don't have to be eloquent. In fact, it's probably better if they're not. Sometimes they'll be tear-filled and come out in sobs as you weep. That's okay. It's also okay to go to God and admit that you don't know how to pray for a particular situation. In Romans 8, God promises that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf in co- according to God's will. So you're never actually alone in this process of going to God in prayer. But when you do, when you go to him with thanksgiving, he and he alone can grant you peace that surpasses all understanding. As you 
come to the realization that whatever he's doing is for the sake of his glory and your good. So leave your worries at the foot of the cross. Finally, Paul says, dwell on good things. Whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, praiseworthy, dwell on these things. During uh, college, I was a kinesiology major, and I had a chance to take a course on sports psychology, and it was fascinating learning how the brain affects athletic performance. Uh, Elite athletes, think Olympians and uh, professional sports players, uh, have skated the perfect routine, executed the perfect ski jump, and swam the perfect race thousands of times in their minds before they ever hit the arena. Quarterbacks have made the perfect throw and point guards the perfect pass hundreds of times before every game, before they ever have a ball in their hands, right? The, the saying that high school coaches have been telling their athletes for years is this, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Well, Paul is telling us that what we think about matters. When we dwell on sinful things, we find ourselves practicing sinful Things. And when we dwell on godly things, we find ourselves practicing godly things. I don't know how you and your situation need to apply this. Maybe it's a shift in the media you consume. Maybe it's a shift in the books you read or in the podcasts or music that you listen to. Maybe it's a shift in the people you allow to speak into your life or the authority that you give bad influences over you. However the Spirit is encouraging you or challenging you, Listen. Listen and begin to dwell on things above, no longer on things that are perverted and broken and sinful, telling us lies about who we are and how the world is supposed to work and what we're supposed to be. One really practical way to do this is to begin memorizing Scripture. You could start right here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, or uh, if you haven't done much memorizing before, it's uh, particularly challenging for you, maybe start with verse 4. It's a little shorter and a little easier to grab. There's, there's no real science behind what you should start memorizing. Just pick something and go with it, right? Just like eating right makes your body feel better, filling your mind with Scripture will cause you to sink deeper and deeper into your relationship with Jesus. Paul says, agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be gracious. Don't worry. Pray. Dwell on good things. It's a lot to do, and let me just remind us that this list is in no way a list of things that we're supposed to do to earn our salvation or that we have to do because we think God will think less of us or will love us less if we don't. No, our motivator is just the opposite, right? We're motivated to love God and glorify him in these ways because he first loved us. And so we live our lives as a response to his love, not to earn it. Paul encourages us in our practice and then he goes on and encourages us in our posture. Let's look back at verses 10 to 14. He writes this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. 
If you go on and read the rest of that section, there's lots of churches and uh, support and no support and some partnerships going on here, right? Paul starts by thanking the Lord for the care that the Philippian church had for him. Likely, uh, that church was supporting Paul financially, but certainly they were lifting him up in prayer and encouraging him however they were able, whenever they could, even though, Paul says, they didn't have a lot of opportunity to do that. Paul is grateful for their support, and he throws out this one-liner later about no church sharing with him in giving and receiving except the Philippians alone, kind of a challenge to some other first century churches. He's grateful to the people in Philippi, and clearly they played a big role in Paul's missionary work. But Paul's taking this opportunity to tie in with his thank you a little bit of a challenge. Thanks, thanks, he says. Uh, I sincerely appreciate and have relied on your support, and you've done well to support me, but I know where my strength really comes from. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. He says, well-fed, hungry, supported, unsupported, in prison, out of prison, in physical danger, out of physical danger, in abundance, or in need. I know the secret of being content. Here it is. I can do all things through him, that is Christ, who strengthens me. What's the secret to contentedness? That all things can be done through Christ. Stephen Lawson, uh, in this book, Philippians for You, that we've been referencing often, writes this. He says, when Paul writes, I have learned to be content, this speaks of a calm acceptance of his present lot in life. To be discontent would mean that Paul wants to be somewhere else uh, than where where the sovereign hand of God has placed him and to have more than the sovereign hand of God has chosen to give him. To be content is to have a peaceful acceptance of where God has providentially placed him. There is nothing lacking from the ample supply provided by Christ living with him. Paul has everything that he needs in the fullness of his Savior and Lord. When I was in high school, I had a football coach who was a believer and who led our local uh, FCA chapter, and he gave a bunch of us on the football team these little keychains in the shape of a football with uh, Philippians 4.13 printed on the back, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And looking back, uh, while I appreciate the encouragement, I'm not sure that what Paul had in mind when he penned that verse was my ability to make a big tackle on Friday night under the lights, right? But he did have in mind my ability and your ability to live with much or to live with little. He had in mind our ability to let the gospel shine through our lives in whatever circumstances God has placed us in. Your marriage might be really hard right now. Your coworkers might be grating on you day in and day out. Your kids who are home all summer long might be driving you nuts, right? Your parents might be riding you and you feel like you can't take it anymore. As you age, maybe your body is wearing out. I don't know what your situation is, but I do know this. You might feel like you can't honor God where he's placed you. And I can confirm that on your own, you can't. If you fold into yourself and if you try to do what you think is right rather than listening to what the Word of God says about how you should respond in a particular situation, it's not going to go well. If you trust that Jesus has a plan for your life, a plan to glorify himself through his provision in whatever situation you're in, uh, even then, I can't promise that your life will get easier or even feel better. 
But I can promise that the only way for us to be content is to be satisfied in Jesus, doing all the things that he's called us to do while relying on his strength, not our own. The posture that Paul is encouraging is one of submission to the power and the will of God. Recognizing that wherever God has placed us in life, whatever our circumstances are, he has us there by his sovereign will and his strength is sufficient for us. One commentator said this, Paul's God is our God. So when we lack the contentment that Paul enjoyed and exemplified, it is not because we don't have what we need to enjoy it. It's because our eyes are on the wrong place. They are upon our circumstances instead of upon our Savior. You think you can't get through this hard spot in your marriage. By the power of God, you can. You think you can't cope with this unexpected pregnancy or the difficulty you're having in conceiving. By the power of God, you can. You think you can't step out in faith and speak boldly of the hope Jesus provides to your coworker or neighbor or teammate or classmate. By the power of God, you can. You think you can't, you can't quit drinking or clicking through images on the web or whatever else it is. By the power of God, you can. You can live a life that's honoring to him. You can, by his strength, be transformed more and more into the image of his son. Will your life ever be sinless? Nope. Will you ever in this life feel like you've made it as a Christian? No. But as a response to the love of Christ, should you, by his strength, make your best effort to live for him in good times and in bad with plenty and with little? Absolutely. We must adopt a posture of reliance on the strength of Jesus if we're ever going to make it through anything that's difficult in this life. Otherwise, we're just like a small boat out on the ocean being thrown around by the swells, right? The strength of Christ is our anchor and our guide. Adjust your posture and rely on him. Paul encourages our practices, our posture, and finally, our perspective. Let's look back at verses 19 and 20. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The central theme of the book of Philippians is rejoice. And I suggested earlier that Philippians reaches its climax in chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. In the midst of conflict, Paul says Rejoice, But in the midst of that conflict, how, how can Paul say rejoice? He goes on and says that we shouldn't worry about anything, as we saw, right? But through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, we're to present our requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's in prison, right? Unjustly. How can he say this? How can he say all these things? And how can he not worry? Well, Paul concludes his letter here with two extremely important truths. He says, God supplies everything we need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Second, Paul says, glory belongs to God forever and ever. Glory belongs to God forever and ever. So how? How can we do anything that's in this letter? How can we have joy in all things? By shifting our perspective. 
only when we come to the recognition that God's glory outweighs my preference and my momentary happiness, only then can we rejoice in all circumstances. Clyde Kilby was a professor at Wheaton College, and he wrote this. He said, I shall bet my life on the assumption that this world is not idiotic, neither run by an absentee landlord, but that today, this very day, some stroke is being added to the cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who calls himself Alpha and Omega. God is at work in our lives always, and he's always glorifying himself. See, God will be glorified in our conflict. God will be glorified in our graciousness. God will be glorified in our prayers and in our reliance on him. God will be glorified when he gives us peace. God will be glorified when we dwell on that which is good. As we live our lives in light of the truth of the gospel that's been laid forth over and over and over in this book, God will be glorified. See, God's glory will prevail. He will always be glorified. Some of you are in really hard situations right now that you just can't see out of, right? You're in conflict with people in your life and people looking in can't see it or they can't understand it. God says, rejoice in me always. Why? Because I'll be glorified through this. Friends, if the truth of this book and the commands in it are ever going to penetrate the recesses of our broken and sinful hearts, we have to come to a point where we understand that the glory of God is greater than anything. The glory of God is greater than anything. Does that mean that our lives have to be miserable? Absolutely not. Our lives don't have to be miserable, but where we find our joy has got to shift. John Piper says in his book, uh, Desiring God, He says, God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. How is God most glorified when we find our satisfaction in him? When we come to a spot where we realize that his glory outweighs our very lives. And so we surrender everything to him and we follow him with all we have. We do what Paul says here in the book of Philippians, in the midst of conflict, rejoice. And conversely, in the midst of beauty that the world offers, we rejoice, not because we get to enjoy it, not because we get to enjoy the beauty that God's created, but because in experiencing beauty or conflict or in experiencing God's work in our lives and in experiencing the transformation that he works in us, we have the opportunity to be satisfied with who God is and to experience more and more of him and to let his glory show through our lives. The only way we can understand the book of Philippians and the call on our lives as Christians to live lives worthy of the gospel as we eagerly await Jesus is if we come to a place where we understand that God's glory is what is most important. The only way we can understand all of redemptive history is by understanding that God's glory is so far beyond what we can begin to comprehend. It's ridiculous. We can't We can't think, or sorry, we think that God can't take our situation and glorify himself because it's too full of sin or hurt or pain or junk or whatever other garbage lie we tell ourselves. Guys, God took the brutal, sinful, barbaric murder of his son and used it to glorify himself in ways that we can't begin to fathom. 
He can use your situation. He can use your brokenness. He can use your pain, your weak efforts. He can use it to bring glory to himself. And we need to be eager to let him. Our perspectives have to shift from I am the most important thing in the world to God's glory outweighs everything in this life. Only when our perspectives shift can we ever hope to find joy in all things. I'd like to invite the worship team forward now. In just a moment, we're going to respond together by singing the chorus of Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It says this, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Look to Jesus, and you will find joy in all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book, for the challenging and hopeful truths that you've communicated to us through it. Lord, would you give us a view of your glory that's in line with what you deserve? We know it's beyond anything that we can begin to understand, but we need your help to have a bigger view of what you deserve and how we might live our lives in light of who you are. We eagerly await the return of Jesus and long to be with him and live in light of his love and grace while we're here. We love you and we thank you for the shed blood of Christ that covers our sin and allows us to stand forgiven before you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.